This podcast contains content of a sensitive nature that may be upsetting to some listeners. Welcome to a special episode of The Professor and the Hack. As you know, normally I speak, I'm Hugh Rimmington, I'm the Hack, uh, and we speak with Professor Peter Van Onselen. He's uh, taking a break, but we have got a fantastic guest, the guest for The Times, uh, joining us in his place, no less than the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. Hello. Lovely to see you. (laughs) It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Hugh. I don't know if I'm qualified to be a professor, but I'll, I'll cop that today. I think it'll be one of many accolades that'll come your way, I've got no doubt. <laughs> professor of what? Um, you can choose, I think. Ooh. We're in an amazing time. Mm. It's not a comfortable time. That's right. How would you describe it? What's the feeling you have of what's going on in Australia at the moment? Oh, that's hard to summarise. Uh, but you're right in, in that it is an uncomfortable time, but... You know, to make change, we do need to get uncomfortable. Um, We do need to have difficult conversations. But I think ultimately beyond the discomfort uh, is an overwhelming catalytic sense of empowerment and hope, not just for survivors of child sexual abuse, but for the whole community, the whole nation. Um, we're witnessing a paradigm shift of, of attitudes towards something that was for so long shrouded in darkness that's now being brought into the light. And through the conversations around that, we're educating ourselves. And through that education, we're creating incredible positive change. You talk about a paradigm shift and I'm, I'm conscious. I definitely feel it. I feel mm-hmm. it in my workplace. I feel it in conversations that are being had. There's obviously this uh, tremendous fuss. It's, it's an appropriate fuss. It's an unresolvable fuss around Christian Porter and the, the Attorney General and the allegations against him. There are the uh, rape investigation now on foot involving Brittany Higgins, the uh, parliamentary staffer. Uh, There is separately petitions being put together by former Sydney high school student about uh, consent education with the revelations that so many um, young girls during their school years now recognise that they were subject to sexual assault. And then there is your own experience, your own being named Australian of the Year, your, your, your electrifying speech to the National Press Club. Let's talk this is a conference of events and and they all kind of seem to be combining upon each other let's talk about um how you got to be here i know it's tough yeah but you but you you came to prominence by being determined to break the silence around a law in tasmania that made it impossible for you to speak out about what had happened to you as a girl despite the fact that the perpetrator in your case was able to speak, had freedom to speak and to, and to talk about things that were intimate and difficult for you. Yeah, and when I, when I learned about that law, um, what I saw that as was a structure, you know, and there are many, many structures that still exist um, 
that have this effect. It was a structure that enabled the abuse by mimicking it in its silencing of the truth. Uh, it reinforced the feeling of disempowerment, you know, because abuse itself is characterised by a loss of control, a loss of power. And then to have that, like I said, reinforced at the structural level was another another form of the same exploitation of, of you know, power being taken away from, from an already vulnerable person. And because it's in survivor stories, because it's in lived experience that we get the insights that we need to inform change, I just, it was a no-brainer to me to, to campaign against that law, um, to campaign against the silence, to fill that silence with positivity, with hope um, and with understanding. One of the things that's come of that, from your courage in that process, is among colleagues of mine, people I've known for a long time, never suspecting, never having reason to sort of factor in experiences of this kind. Uh, people have told me and have told other colleagues are talking for the first time about abuses that they've received, women and men. And, and I reflect on that and it's painful. It's painful to hear. Uh, it's painful but somewhat empowering, I think, for people to talk about it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a wholly regenerative thing. Yes, it is very painful. Um, but I like to remind people, you know, it's a great privilege that we have um, to be able to, as a society, sit down and talk about our problems. Um, you know, and as painful as, the, as they are, um, they're not as painful as the, the experience itself of abuse. Um, and it's in those painful conversations, like I said before, it's in those painful conversations that we can develop our empathy and understanding and therefore move forward. You know, we don't have to get trapped in this negative narrative that goes around in circles of just hearing and reliving traumatising details. We can focus on the reparation, um, which is the next step from here. So that's why I am filled with hope because there is so much of a swell um, and the conversation is moving very quickly. Therefore, I think that that's an indication that the, the progress will move just as quickly yeah, so let's talk about that because definitely I think you're right. This is kind of there's what's come from this pent up thing. It's a sense of, of rage, of anguish, of desire for justice, mm. uh, for impatience, uh, for something to change. The zero zero tolerance policy of this behaviour, and off, as it, as is often the case when an issue that's been shrouded in darkness is is suddenly thrust into the light, there's a reaction of of, of shock and horror. You know, how could this be happening and how could it be so ubiquitous and the reason for that is the silence and that's something that predators have weaponized for such a long time they weaponize our discomfort they want us to feel uh so ashamed about speaking about it and about hearing about it that we retreat again into you know a state of of silence a state of apathy um so that's why i encourage people not to give up on this conversation do you encourage people to come to talk about it it, it yeah. would work for some people look at it, it's different for everybody and 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 of course you know if you're not ready you're not ready that's okay it has to be on your terms our truths always have to be on our terms that's what makes them truths you know truths by definition cannot be forced um so there needs to be patience there needs to be empathy um but there, there does need to be encouragement and, and, and constant reminders, constant reassurance 
that it that it is okay. You know that we're all human beings. Um, you know, and it's okay to it's okay equally to not know how to talk about something as it is to not know how to respond. It's the intention behind the response that's the most important thing. You know, it's it's okay to even just say, I don't know what to say, uh, but I hear you and I believe you and I want to support you in whatever capacity I am able to. I think that's what matters. So it seems to me as if change is absolutely essential. It's inescapable. Something has to give. What will change look like? Change will look like education, first and foremost. One of the gaps in our collective understanding around the issue of sexual assault is the psychological manipulation that underpins it. And that aspect of uh, sexual assault is actually the biggest, especially in the cases of prolonged sexual assault. It's the aspect that we don't talk about enough, but it's also the aspect that leaves the most lasting impacts. You know, I personally have um, scar tissue on the inside of my body, um, but the lasting impacts, the psychological damage that's done will, will also last a lifetime um, and affect me in my everyday life. And that's not widely understood enough so we need to educate around that we need to educate around grooming we need to educate around coercive control and from that education we can properly inform legislation accordingly that better supports victims uh, not only in their recovery but by deterring predators and disempowering them i, I want to get to the legislation mm-hmm. and, and those sorts of changes but if you say it's not well understood that I look at you um, superbly articulate, uh, confident and strong, uh, able to do all kinds of things that would, uh, you know, deter all kinds of people speaking publicly, you know, meeting all the big names of the, of the country and the prime just, ministers and all just, this sort of they're stuff. They're just people, just they're like just me. People, yeah. We're all just people. But you talk about, despite that, that you feel as if there's a psychological loading from that, that you, you can't get past. Oh, it's not that I can't get past it. It's I've I've reframed my attitude towards everything, um, and I think that that's something that people um, should be encouraged by. This idea that nothing is fixed. You know, life is a transient thing, and that's very wonderful. Um, you know, there's inevitably going to be horrible things, um, as per the nature of life. But uh, just as there are horrible things, there are beautiful things as well, in equal measure. Um, and we need both equally to. to to have, um, you know, a, a proper concept of things, to have to have value. Um, uh, but rather than think of my trauma as being uh, something that's a source of um, damage or something that holds me back, it's something that I've converted into, you know, um, passion and, and, and fuel um, to drive change. To, to educate people, to educate myself. You know, I'm constantly learning, I'm constantly making mistakes, therefore, um, just as everybody else is. But, um, yeah, it's an ongoing thing and it's not, it's not linear. Just like I said, life isn't either. Life's not a linear thing. It goes up, down, all around in circles. You, you talk about education and you talk about the law. Mm. Um, give me a little bit more of your 
view of how education might look like. How does it operate? How young do we have to teach kids? What do we have to expose? Because if you're going to teach kids mm. what to look out for, you have to give them some sense of what the nature of the threat is. Mm. And, and that can be a, a difficult conversation to have with a very young child. Yeah. How, how does it work? Look, admittedly, I, I don't know um, about the specifics but I think that we need to start educating as early as possible, uh, obviously age appropriately, you know, looking at educating at the primary level in schools um, as well as early high school. But education, not necessarily uh, formally, but um, also informally, um, and education not just in educational institutions, education in workplaces, um, education in the home. Um, and I think that a great starting point is to look at something like grooming um, or in the domestic violence space, coercive control, and really breaking down what that looks like. Because even though they are complicated concepts, they can be compartmentalised. Um, and grooming, for instance, can be broken down into six main concurrent phases, which I've talked about a lot. Talk to me about them again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Look, they bear repeating um, and I will... I will be talking about them nonstop um, until the message really does hit home. Um, the first phase of grooming is, is targeting the individual. So that's targeting somebody who's vulnerable, um, whose circumstances lend, lend um, themselves to, to being manipulated. Uh, in my case, you know, I was not only was I a, an innocent child, I was also suffering from anorexia and I had significant change at home. Um, the second phase is um, gaining trust and that is establishing a connection with the individual um, to make them feel as though they're heard, to make them feel as though they're safe and secure. And the third is filling a need and that is very calculated, especially this piece, because it involves playing a role um, to fill a gap in the emotional or mental support of a target. So in my case, although I come from an incredibly loving, supportive, attentive family, and at the time I had a team of medical professionals as well around me, guiding me in my recovery, um, a lot of their support was in the form of tough love. So the man that abused me uh, adopted the role of sympathiser and told me everything that as a young, vulnerable 15-year-old I wanted to hear. The fourth phase is isolating and that is uh, breaking down the already tenuous relationships that the target has with their genuine supporters. Now that is an interesting piece because it it involves... um, turning certain people away or pushing certain people away but also exploiting others um so one of the things that i'm keen for people to understand is that predators don't just groom the individuals they groom everyone around them um, to serve their end so they'll groom colleagues accordingly um you know they, they, they sort of weaponize people use use them as as pawns um it's, it is it's like a chess game um And the fifth phase, and this is sort of happening throughout because all these phases are concurrent, the fifth phase is is sexualizing and that is gradually exposing the target to sexual content so as to normalize it. 
don't know if you've heard of the frog and boiling water analogy. This one certainly applies here. And I mean, it applies to grooming as a whole, um, but it certainly applies here. Um, you know, it's very insidious. And by the time the, the abuse is actually introduced, um, it's, it's too late. Um, and the sixth phase is maintaining control. And, and that is the striking of a balance um, between causing pain but also uh, providing the relief from that pain so that you're solely dependent on the abuser for your self-esteem, your self-worth, your concept of self is, is completely destroyed by the abuser and therefore dictated by, by the abuser. In those six stages, mm. the child, the victim of this process... Can they reasonably, even with education, be expected to read what's actually happening and red flag it themselves? Or is it, is it, does the safety of the child in that environment depend entirely on an adult knowing what's going on? I think everyone has a role to play and it's certainly not that a, a, a victim is, is um, su- supposed to be able to foresee um, this sort of predatory behaviour, but the more that we educate everyone around this, bystanders and targets alike, or possible targets alike, um, the less power perpetrators will have, um, you know, because we'll be aware, we'll be aware that this is how they attempt to operate. Um, and, and, and I am hopeful that in, in educating around these things, um, that they can, that yeah, that that that, that predators have less, um, less less traction and less 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 of an, an ability to actually carry out these calculated things. What has emerged and what you've described there is a um, a particular kind of abuse, uh, which is a an adult perpetrator taking advantage of a child. Uh, something which has emerged in this current sort of whole debate is really where there's peer-to-peer abuse Mm. and uh, particularly school age. One of the things which is striking about the Chanel Contos stuff Mm. is that uh, not only did um, lots of girls of her acquaintance when she was going through school realise retrospectively they'd been sexually assaulted by boys of a similar age um, without knowing that it constituted a sexual assault. They hadn't been educated about that, educated about consent. But following from that is that boys themselves, presumably ca- carrying out sexual assaults, what an adult can perceive as sexual assaults, may not have known themselves that they were sexually assaulting. So poor is the grasp of concepts of consent and respect. Yeah, and that, look, all of this has to do with cu- cultural ignorance, um, and corrupt cultures that have been perpetuated. You know, this is this issue is far bigger than any individual, and we've seen that. And and you know, when you're talking about Christian Porter and, and you're talking about you know my recognition, this is far bigger than me. It's far bigger than Christian Porter. This is this is such a big issue, and the reason why is because there are so many gaps in our cultural um, understanding, um, whether it's around sexual assault or or the issue of consent, which is a part of sexual assault.
We live in strange times and you have to wonder just what will happen next. What will change now that COVID-19 has brought so many aspects of life to a halt or altered them beyond all recognition? Is this an opportunity to rebuild for the better? In this podcast series, I've tracked down the best and brightest to explore what the future now holds for all the things we took for granted. So now what? With Waleed Ali. Subscribe on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm disturbed by the fact that um, I don't know. I suspect online, the availability of online pornography has made mm. the world a less well, less healthy place, particularly the teenage, you know, years. But I'm disturbed by, for all our sophistication, uh, all our access to information, that somehow or other we're now learning the depths of which there is an utter... Uh, failure, a dysfunction around w- one of the most fundamental relationship, I suppose, between men and women. It doesn't happen entirely heterosexually. There are other abuses elsewhere. But that this relationship between men and women, as old as the book of Genesis, um, seems to be so corrupted, uh, so lacking in, in respect. Yeah, we've, bec- we've become so disconnected, I think, from meaningful values especially in the west being so disconnected from each other from our environment from the natural environment you know the constant overexposure to this you know graphic content um you know not just um sexually graphic content but um you know video games that mimic war zones um and the you know because of the the um rapid advancements in technology they're crystal clear they're like you're really there and the the the, the gory you know the blood the gore that all of that it's just it's so confronting and we've become desensitized and um yeah it's it's i suppose it's hard to it's hard to really trace the impact of 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 this sort of widespread overexposure and disconnection um but i think it comes back to you know, we need to reconnect as human beings. We need to remind each other of our common humanity and, 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 and really lean into the love and the light. And I know it sounds really trite and I can hear myself saying it. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, whatever. But I really mean it, you know. It is. It's about reframing how we talk to each other and how we listen to each other and, um, you know, what's important and really valuing the, you know, we've become with by this – instant gratification culture that we have which plays a lot into the pornography thing as well you know people who find themselves sexually frustrated then go online to to porn um you know we've we've become detached from the value of simplicity you know and it's just as simple as like things like cooking yourself a meal have been replaced by uber eats and things like that and what people realize is that convenience is actually not um a virtue Convenience is uh, a starvation of an opportunity to experience genuine reward through doing something for yourself. Because it's in the struggle. It's in the struggle. Yeah, it's in the struggle. It's in the um, it's in the struggle that you you develop. You know, appreciation for um, when you get to the end of it. 
you know, it makes it taste so much sweeter when you've cooked the meal yourself and it might be absolute crap. <laughs> like my dear boyfriend, he thinks that satay chicken involves just um, a box of chicken and <laughs> a tub of peanut butter. <laughs> and a few sticks. <laughs> sticks. But, um, you know, it's... it's um, but he's yeah, trying. But, but yeah, it's in, it's, in the, it's in the attempt, it's in the struggle. And that's where you also find opportunities to, to laugh and, and um, you know, and make mistakes and those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's something that we need to look at as well is yeah. reframing our values. What are our values in society? Yeah. Respect. Respect. Respect yeah, and really looking at simplicity and, and um, you know, just, the, just this, that's, see that those are the things that, you know, because when I was nominated for Australian of the Year, it just made me really um, reflect on what it is that I love about Australia. And um, I think that, you know, we've resisted a lot of, you know, we've obviously been influenced by America and um, other world leaders, um, you know, in, in lots of in lots of ways. But I think that the reason why we've been able to resist um, a lot more influence is that we've got such a... I don't know, just such a like inherent value of like a simple day out in the backyard listening to Paul Kelly and being with your loved ones and just sort of shooting the shit. Excuse my French, but, you know, and I think that's that's what life's all about. It's just being with each other and sharing joy. And, and that comes back to the consent issue as well um, because I've never understood how uh, – because I personally, I get vicarious joy. That's my main source of joy and, in fact, you know, um, I'm just as happy, if not more. So if, if somebody succeeds and, um, you know, I'm failing at something like, um, so I've never understood why or how people derive joy from a situation where somebody else isn't and clearly isn't, um, you know, so when you're looking at something like consent, the same rules apply as if you like in the, in the context of like even just playing a board game or something, like if somebody's not enjoying the game, like don't push it, don't force it. Um, it's the utter selfishness of it, I guess. Yeah, but that's why it is. It's not about – it's about abuse of power. And we've talked about parliament, um, but it's not unique to parliament. It's, it's everywhere. And it's actually really not about sex either. It is. It's about exploiting – um, a weakness in somebody or something to a selfish, selfish um, end. I take on board all that you say about uh, a better world being one of um, of simplicity and respect and the things that are real. This moment that we're in, though, that that needs to be harnessed if there is to be change, ultimately is going to come down to matters not just of education but of law. Mm-hmm. Um, w- one of the things which has struck me in recent days is that the legal process that works quite well for murders or for armed robberies or for property crimes just simply doesn't work with sexual assault and rape crimes. Uh, for a start off, if you police come to a house and there's a dead body there on the ground with a knife poking out of its chest, they don't start immediately interro- interrogating the dead body or questioning That's whether the right. dead body invited the knifing or or was the dead body drunk at the time or what was the dead body wearing that might have perhaps induced someone to put a knife into the chest you know all these sorts of issues it's it's sexual assault and rape um are just fraught with all these uh, unbalancing mm. of um 
who is the victim and who might be the perpetrator. And that flows right through the court system. Uh, we're told by the Prime Minister the rule of law is the rule of law. There's only one place these things can be decided, and that is by the courts, by the police, and then ultimately through the courts. Uh, you know, I, But there seems to be, to me, a great sense of dissatisfaction with that, partly because people know that the vast majority of sexual assaults don't end in convictions. In fact, if you wanted to commit a form of crime with the with a prospect of of us getting away with it, it'd be some obscure white collar crime or commit rape. And and that's comes down to the fact that it's not just a case of what the survivor said versus what the perpetrator said. It's what the survivor said versus what the perpetrator said and the perpetrator's words are cushioned by cultures that reinforce them uh, because we have such a lack of an understanding around this issue. You know, on, on average it takes 23.9 years for a survivor of sexual abuse to actually share their stories. So, you know, considering that we've only seen changes in legislation that have enabled people to speak up, um, you know, in the last year, uh, we're, we're, we're not, we're only just starting to, to hear all the stories. And so therefore we're only just starting to, um, get all these insights that, that are needed, that are necessary to inform structural change. Um, but do, I, does it matter to you that there are different jurisdictions across Australia? Yes, it? it does. And look, I, I can appreciate the need for, um, distinction, in legislation, if it pertains to you know geographical location, infrastructure, um, uh, but when it's a human rights issue, something like sexual abuse, especially child sexual abuse, uh, we need to have a zero tolerance policy attitude towards it that's reinforced at the structural level nationally, um, because when you have inconsistency around an issue, when you have ambiguity, what that does is undermine our ability to take it seriously, it undermines our understanding of it. And without a proper understanding of something, you cannot educate accordingly. You cannot govern accordingly. I'm struck if we're going to, say, smooth over the laws, get reforms which are national. I know you don't want to talk about Christian Porter, but it would logically follow that the person who would be leading this uh, in this moment in time would be the Commonwealth Attorney General, who is Christian Porter, um, given what you know, he's been through. Uh, we make no judgment. You're keen not to make a judgment about it. No, I'm that. not judge, jury and executioner, no. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a commentator either. You know, that story is not my story to tell. But given all of that, we're still mm. left with a situation where there's an urgent need for change in the law. Oh, yes. And a key figure in that game is going to be perceived by at least many people as being not tainted in the process. Yeah, and that's very telling, isn't it? That's when people wonder why we have these laws. They're often written by people who serve to benefit from them. And we've seen that throughout history, not just in the case of all oppression, you know, not just in the case of sexual abuse, you know, racism, systemic racism in, in America, in Australia, throughout the world. It's the same. They're the same parallels. And so nevertheless... How do we resolve? How do we get? Because one thing I'm not seeing happening right now is all the anger and the anguish and the recognition that's happening across the country as yet being phrased in ways that might change laws to make them better. I'm not hearing it. 
I'm not hearing it from politicians. They're all talking about whether they should be inquiring into Christian Porter or not. Um, uh, you know, I'm not hearing it even from the legal profession. Uh, the Law Reform Commission saying, yes, we've got to change the law this way or the other. But you'll certainly be hearing it from me and I'm not going to shut up anytime soon. Exactly. So, I mean, is there is there a danger, and perhaps we'll leave it on this because mm. I've kept you for, for a long time. Right. Is there a risk that for all that is emerging now and all the sense of anguish and anger and possibility that's emerging at this time, that it could all just tamp down, all the flames go down? That is, yeah, that is a huge concern of mine, um, is that, that we will get trapped in a, a sort of a cycle of rage in a very negative narrative that, that is punctuated by people tearing shreds off individuals. And again, that's why I'm reticent to actually to say anything about Christian Porter. I don't know the man, um, you know, and my feelings I've established, they're pretty clear, I think, um, where my loyalties lie as a human being. Um, you know, I stand with survivors in solidarity and I believe... Um, you know, I, 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 I believe survivors. Um, but what we need to remind ourselves is that it's silence that predators capitalize on. So we need to be very wary of, um, you know, not channeling this rage into a positive direction. Um, which we can do if we make our focus on prevention and education. You know, all these inquiries and responses are all well and good and lots of resources are always thrown into inquiries um, as a sort of pat on the back, I suppose, by the people who, um, you know, establish the inquiries of, look, we're doing something, you know, and, and that the hope is is that then once the inquiry is done that that's good enough and that it'll all go away and get swept back under the rug. Um, so what we need to do is... Like I said, make this a shift this conversation in a positive direction by um, yes, hearing the confronting details that um, instill a sense of rage that inspire um, passion um, to want to change. Um, but then, you know, focusing not so much on what has happened, but on the lessons that can be learned from what has happened to move on to the next step, uh, because. I don't. I certainly don't want to see individuals deterred um, from action because they're sick of hearing um, these re-traumatizing things. And as as a survivor, you know, I I I get it. I'm re-traumatized every time I'm brought back into the conversation. That's you know, unfortunately, because of ignorant cultures, often misdirected by media, you know, towards oh, tell us what it's like being raped or you know things like that. There's just it's. It's the next step that we need to focus on. People have asked you that? Well, oh, yes, people have asked me all sorts of things. Um, you know, I mean, the first headline that, that covered um, what happened to me um, in my local paper was teacher admits to affair with student. And this was a count affair. of... Yeah, and this was a count of a, a case of clear abuse by a pedophile who was found with 28 multimedia files of child pornography on his computer and a man who used to boast to me about all the other girls that he'd abused. He was a serial offender, right? And it was very clear that there are patterns of abuse. It was very clear that um, it was I wasn't his first victim. Um, and still, because of received ideas, because of ignorant cultures, it's, it's framed in a completely wrong way that perpetrators capitalise on, and they capitalise on any sympathy... Um, that that we we offer them, you know, because I think there is actually there's room in this discussion for 
um, acknowledging that, that, that there are people who, by no fault of their own, have um, urges, you know, um, and that's, that's okay, that's nobody's fault. Um, but there's a difference between having an urge and premeditating that urge and actually implementing it repeatedly um, at the expense of the of an of another individual or, or other individuals. Um, you know, so you know we need to, we do we do need to provide resources, a safe space for for for, for people who are experiencing, you know, um, dangerous urges, to be able to speak about those. Um, uh, but we we need to stop encouraging um, um, predators by, you know, with with sort of negative victim stereotypes and, and victim rhetoric. Well, I, I hope that the uh, period over which you're going to be Australian of the Year, that you are Australian of the Year, that uh, the telling of this and the pushing of this doesn't uh, take uh, too much of a toll in you. I certainly feel that you're at the forefront of a, of a, of, of a, of a change year. Yeah, but I I'm just a do- little domino. That's what I like to think of myself as. <laughs> Maybe that gets me off the hook. Rather larger than a little one. Grace <laughs> Tame, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Hugh. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 